Hello, and welcome to episode two of Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, Today, David Morrison and I will be continuing our conversation uh, that we started on last episode. This week, we're going to explore Desert Rain Community, uh, how it came to be, some of the logistical ideas around it of actually building the chapel, as well as the prayer life of the community members and kind of where it stands today to serve the community um, and those uh, surrounding areas of Chaparral, New Mexico. So um, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode two. All right, I'm here today on Desert Rain Community Radio with David Morrison. I have a little quote for for us today to start us off. This is uh, from M. Scott Peck. Uh, He talks about community and the four stages that he talks about is pseudo-community, chaos, emptiness, and true community. And he's uh, have is this quote is attributed to him. Community is another such phenomenon. Like electricity, it is profoundly lawful, yet there remains something about it that is inherently mysterious, miraculous, and unfathomable. Thus, there is no adequate one-sentence definition of genuine community. Community is something more than the sum of its parts, its individual members. What is this something more? Even to begin to answer that, we enter a realm that is not so much abstract as almost mystical. It is a realm where words are never fully suitable and language itself falls short. And we're here to talk about community. Yeah, Teach very, us about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very powerful quote. And uh, through the years, we've discovered that those four stages really are uh, true in reality. They're not, it's not just theory. It's practical uh, of, any, of the life of any group of people. It's something you've actually experienced here at Desert Rain. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we we let uh, we ended off last week uh, with this idea of of you and another family uh, going to live in community, right. moving out to the desert. And and could you could you kind of lay out sort of the practical beginnings of what what that looked like, leaving the church you had started and 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 moving out here to Chaparral, New Mexico. Yeah, from what I remember, we had to look for models, practical models uh, of community that weren't, say, uh, a Jonestown cult, <laughs> Koresh cult. And so, you know, you're, you're looking up, looking after a, a big wall of opposition. And so... Opposition and, from who? Of, of just uh, the, the lifespan of a community. Mm. Um. A, a, a healthy community. Yeah, yeah. Or, we wanted to be a healthy community, yeah, yeah, not yeah. a cult. Uh, <laughs> and there's, and there's, you know, there's cultic things about a lot of churches, mm-hmm. but you know, we and, and usually you don't know that about yourself until you see it. And by us stepping out of that church world, that conventional church world, we were able to see a lot of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, so we're yeah, so we we're looking for models. Mm-hmm. We kind of settled on the uh, Celtic monastic model, um, the Irish Irish monasticism. Uh, these early communities had uh, married people, had children, had single people, celibates, and so forth. And uh, they were known to be fairly liberal, not only in their theologies, but in their uh, just in their lifestyles. Okay, and. Uh, and so that became a, a good model for us. And what what time frame would you say historic historical time frame those models existed? Uh, we're talking about like pre Middle Ages, okay, around there. Um, and so, and so then there was a matter of looking for where are we going to do this. And so there was a lot of time spent on that and selling our homes. Those of us who had committed, uh, dealing with the fallout of of uh, the the conventional church not making it. We wanted to transform the church into a, 
an intentional community and that just wasn't to be, we weren't able to do that. And when you mentioned people that were committed at the beginning, was this 10 people, 20 people, 30? Yeah, a handful of us, a small minority uh, for sure. And it just get, kept getting uh, uh, shaved down more and smaller more. And more. And smaller and um, smaller. And so, yeah, so it was it was definitely a gamble. And at the peak of your church, so I remember correctly, you had about, I think you said, four or 500 people come in every week? Yeah, 400 is probably, yeah. An the excessive, high watermark. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, that's when you count the dogs and the cats and the dolls. <laughs> on the Easter Sunday. <laughs> Easter Sunday kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, it, it was, and we're talking around 2001 about okay. this time. And and when you, is that the same? So the high water mark is 2001. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was, pro- it was probably uh, in the wake of uh, the 9-11 attacks. Okay. Uh, church attendance and then exploded this, during those times. Starting to look into these. Uh, this different um, way of church or this this uh, monastic community. What what year was that? The, this about that same time, even before two thousand two thousand one, uh, even even nineteen ninety nine. We we were also interested. We we investigated this new movement at the time uh, at Vineyard Connections, and it, it was the uh, with uh, Mike Bickle. Uh, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and they had started an initiative of 24-hour prayer and worship. Mm. So we were very intrigued by that. But but again, we just felt like it wasn't a long-term sustainable model for us to raise our kids uh, and then trying to pray for 24 hours a day. Right. Uh, that just wasn't sustainable. So we chose the monastic model instead, which was uh, more conducive to integrate your entire life, do life together, pray together work together, uh, play together, all those kinds of things. So when you actually ended up on a piece of property that first year or two, what did that look like? Yeah, so it was a lot of waiting. There was a for sale sign in front of my little east side house for a long time, it felt. Um, one of my friends <laughs> came to see me, and you know, when you have friends like this, he said, so which is it, Morrison? Uh, this sign has been in front of your house. Did you miss God or is it the devil uh, preventing you from having a breakthrough? And so that's kind of what, So it was a humbling yeah. time, you know, and uh, to be— uh, So to, had you already moved to Chaparral? Not yet, no. So we, you're, you're, you're we still in the We wanted to stay in Texas yeah. at the time. And so we were looking at properties in Texas, mobile home parks, uh, you know, abandoned mobile home parks. Right. Patches of desert, uh, haciendas that were out there in the in the far east side of El Paso, but the uh, state laws of Texas just prevented us uh, from economically being able to do that. You'd have right. to have millions of dollars to do this, and so we went to New Mexico, and, and that's where the uh, where it was kind of conducive for us. And we tried to find a property, or we tried to buy a property, and putting our, you know, our money together and that kind of thing. Um, but this, the property we originally wanted was caught in probate court. Mm. Uh, and so by like 10 people and right. they were all in New Jersey and New York and half of them were already dead. And, and so it just wasn't going to happen. And then this one on Quitman Street just opened up. Uh, the Steele family uh, were, were originally going to be leaving. I'll let it, them tell the story right. in detail because it's a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the middle of all this planning and dreaming together, uh, Greg Steele lost his, his job as a programmer. And uh, GE bought his company. And, um, and they basically told him, you can move anywhere in the world with us except stay here. Oh, wow. And uh, – and so at one of our planning meetings, Deanna and Greg left the group and they went for the walk in the desert and they came back and they said, we're going to, I'm not going to take any job. And I, I was, I was just like, no, don't do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> this, I'm sure I had a look of horror come over my face. <laughs> like, oh my God, what have we done? I'm ruining these people's lives. These are good people. Uh, and they're, and they're going to follow a madman out into the desert. I wouldn't even follow me out in the desert. And so, and, uh, they took the risk and he, so he had a huge severance package and just decided to, to buy the property outright. 
This was a different property than the one that was in probate. Yeah, across right. the across the highway. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, was it just empty desert? Was there any uh, buildings on? Yeah, it? there was one mobile home. Uh, and that was it. Maybe a okay. shed, I think. So it was just. So both. Was there multiple families at this time? Was it so? When we moved in, no, it was the Steele family and and my family. So we moved into one mobile home. And, and how many how many course. kids? How many kids in this? It was our daughter, and they had three kids, and one was on the way. So this is seven seven and a half <laughs> folks moving into right. A, and so we got our doctorate degree in a crash course of learning how to live in community, and uh, it was pretty intense. It sounds like from what we read earlier about the pseudo community, Absolutely. you guys probably jumped into chaos pretty, Absolutely, pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, the first night, you know, we it was uh, I think it was late spring, like May. Uh, Marsh and I are we're, at the time. Most of our lives were very were night owls. Mm. The steels are uh, the morning birds. Mm -hmm. So uh, the three of us went for a walk around sundown. We came back and the sun had just barely gone down and they were all in bed. And it was like a graveyard in the house. We're like, are they are they mad at us? Are they offended? What, what do we what do? What is going on? What are we doing? Let's turn up the air conditioner. And so uh and there it began. There it began. And and what so was it always the plan for the two families to live there long term? Or what was the Yeah, we we grew up with uh cheesy movies like The Hunt for Red October, and there was us. <laughs> Terrible, and Sean Connery says, uh, uh, when Cortez came to the New World, he burned the ships. <laughs> As a result, his men were well motivated. And so that's kind of, we burned our ships. Right. And we, uh, yeah, we were committed to this. As a result, we were financially tied to it. And But I, I, so. my question was more, were you, was the plan to live in this one trailer indefinitely? Oh, oh no, no, no. Yeah, it was definitely temporary. We, mm -hmm. we, uh. Had plans to to build uh, another homestead and a chapel and and so so we yeah we got yeah, to so tell us about that right away. So uh, there was a, another couple, uh, Sal and Rose Fierro, who he had built his own uh, straw bale home in okay. Clint, and they later that summer, maybe I think it was later that summer, maybe a year later. They uh, moved on the property in an RV that they were traveling around the country with. And uh, and so we decided to, that straw bale was the most forgiving mm. for those of us who don't know what we're doing. They've never done it before, yeah. right? And so we, and it was very hippie-like and felt very monastic. Because mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, some people, they buy, they come out to uh, Chaparral to, to get horses and they, and they, get costumes, cowboy costumes, and <laughs> they become cowboys. And so we thought, well, we'll just play monk. And right. We'll, we'll pretend we're monks. The and three people in Chaparral are the ones playing cowboys, the ones playing monks, and the ones trying to disappear from society. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what what was that straw bale experience? Oh, it was invigorating and exhausting at the same time. It took a little less than a year. I mean, a little more than a year, a year and a couple and it, of months. It was just you, the three families coming together to build this. We had a lot of interested parties that would come on weekends okay. and help out. And, right. Um, but it was all weekend building and after work building. We had our jobs. So everyone here was working full time. Right. I was teaching. Uh, Greg was launching his company Okay. because he, you know. He didn't go with GE, so he, right, he needed to start his own company in the middle of the desert <laughs> where there's no Wi-Fi and right. there's barely electricity. It makes sense. And there was probably barely even uh, wires out here, ran out here yeah. to have internet we're, and all that stuff. Shows how wise we are, doesn't it? And so so we're working on weekends, and it was very hard. We, we, got, we were probably in the best shape of our lives. Mm. Uh, there's probably photos to prove that somewhere. Uh, now that we're in our, we'll, we'll post them on the World Wide Web, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, I know. So it was a lot of fun, but it was also uh, uh, physically very challenging and and even mentally challenging at times when the uh, the inspectors would come, you know, and mm. he'd work so hard on a wall, 
and the inspector would come and not pass you. Mm-hmm. And so then we'd have to just bust it again and make it work and come up to code. And so, so we basically built everything but the electricity and the plumbing. Just had a contracted that right, out, so to speak. Yeah, it's always a good idea to contract that to experts. Absolutely. Right, yeah. yeah. You want your electricity working, and yeah. you definitely want your plumbing working. So the uh, the straw bell um, structure, what what was it exactly? Was it a, a house, a, a place to live? Um, yeah, it became... And what it is now, it's it's been the same. It's it became our gathering place, so it's a chapel. Okay. So it's a large chapel room, and then in the uh, the attaching rooms, uh, my family, my wife, Marsha, and our daughter Anna uh, lived there, and we mm-hmm. reared her there. Yeah, it's uh, having spent time in the in the uh, in that chapel. It's it's a beautiful place to be able to to gather with other people, whether it's one on one and in group or. Um, or one-on-one in conversation, or uh, 20, 30 people yeah. coming together to to have that sacred space. Yeah, there's just a sense of presence about it. I think we started meeting for prayer and meetings uh, when it was just a, a cement slab in the open. Mm. We started immediately Having, hosting things and bringing prayer into that yeah, space. And so it's just it's well prayed. Yeah, and you can definitely feel it. There's definitely, well, I've shared this with you in the past, there's a different, definitely a different feeling when you pull up to Desert Rain, but when you step through the threshold of the uh, of the chapel. Yeah. There's something something really beautiful that, that has happened there. Um, so one of, one of the mission statements you, you uh, have thrown around or, or shared with, with visitors here is, uh, we have no idea what we're doing. We hope God does. Yeah. And how did that inform, like how did, as you're going through building this straw bale, living in the chaos of, of two families in, in one uh, living space and just trying to get your, your feet under you, how did that shape your prayer life? Yeah. It's, you know, the Psalms are really, there's only two prayers in the Psalms, which is, oh God, help and thank you. <laughs> and so we chose, we did both. You know, right. but it was, oh God, oh God, oh God, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We trust you do. And, and you know, and the, the phrase was true for us. Uh, you make the road by walking. Mm. Um, you know, we were raised in suburbia and lower middle class uh, families and, very individualized, you know, very, the, the values of indiv- American individualism dream, and right. American dream. And so all of that had to, to, uh, die in the desert in that second, um, or third, uh, stage of community. Uh, the emptiness, the emptiness. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it has to drain out into the desert and it surely did for and, us. And so to go back to that, that community, uh, building, uh, hypothesis, with the pseudo community, the chaos, and the emptiness, those first three stages. Um, I know you cite some people cycle back and forth through them, but yeah, the first three, the the first time through those three, how was was it six months, six years? What did that time frame look like of the unfolding of that? Yeah, I, I think it. We probably cycled through it quite a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know. I, I think there were. I think with the Steele family and us, I think we came to a general peace and, and intentional true community on a regular basis, if you will. Right. Without on a consistent basis. Yeah, maybe. because we just learned how to deal with conflicts and recognize the emptiness and the awkwardness stage, and then just uh, kind of remain in that intentional community. Uh, I would think, you know, maybe five years into it. Right. So it was a long haul. And, and it sounds like you guys started praying from day or even before you started. Um, prayer was a big part of, of this unfolding. So how did yeah. prayer shape that, those first three stages, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. Prayer is, was the main motivator. That's what we wanted to live lives of prayer. But we didn't want to uh, sacrifice, uh, you know, raising families mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And so for the sake of ministry, you know, that's that's kind of the model you see in uh, modern ministry. And, and so we, we just were trying to avoid that. 
but we wanted to be able to, to just live a prayer-filled life. And you wanted to avoid it because you had lived it. Right, right. yeah, yeah. And you were, you, exactly. it wasn't, we for were you the, all, it wasn't sustainable. I didn't, yeah, we didn't feel like it was. Uh, I was we were looking at, I was looking at the future and it was uh, bigger and better. More people come into your church. More hustle. More, more yeah, more, more bells and whistles. And and not to be cynical, but it just felt like we're we're really just another uh, merchant, religious merchant, offering religious goods and services in competition with the others. Mm. And I, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And then right. pastorally, I didn't want to just placate a group of people for the rest of my life. I have an edge about me, and I've come to embrace that edge. And when you invite a wild animal to a tea party, <laughs> yeah, uh, don't be sense. shocked when the t when the table gets bowled over. You right. know? And, and that's who I am. I I don't try to, you know, I've I've tried to suppress that, and, mm -hmm. and it makes it even worse. I mean, and just so, even in the short time I've known you, I've noticed that trait about you. That like, how do you, as an observer, this is just my observation of you walking that line of, you know, being that wild animal yet still being. Yeah. holding that pastoral space for people. Exactly. And so 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 that was the one route, you know, uh so find a building out in suburbia and uh pay a half a million dollar uh rent on that or mm -hmm. or mortgage or try to attempt to live a more authentic life even though you don't know what that looks like. Yeah, so, I, yeah, it's it's hard to to really know what that means and I can even imagine more so when you've you and, and the steels have, have burned your ships, so to speak. All right. Um, so, so to sort of build on that, what, what was your prayer life like or the rhythm of your prayer? Um, like in a given week, what did that look like early on here at Desert uh, Rain? Let, let's say once the chapel was was completed. Yeah. Uh, we, I, we were uh, more frequent about it. So we kept monastic-esque hours. We were kind of monastic light <laughs> uh, slackers. If you will, in fact, we we would have some professional monks come and have meals with us, and and they were not impressed, and so by our lack of, by our uh, lack of dedication, yeah. And then more conservative Christians would come, and and we were we had erased the boundary between uh, the the constructed boundary between secular and sacred. Mm. So we felt, you know, and so our kids are talking dragons and wizards and Harry Potter and things like that, and. Which was just normal pop culture stuff yeah, for the time. but not for conservative Christians. Right, no, I understand. Right, so, right. Yeah, so we were just a, an anomaly. and um, So we, yeah, so if I remember, we, we tried to meet uh, three times a day. And we did a, an integration of monastic hours, uh, also known as liturgy of the hours, psalms, uh, mostly uh, gospel canticles. And then we would also pray in our charismatic tradition, which was free-flowing, um, freestyling it mm -hmm. uh, as the Spirit leads you, so to speak, right. to, to pray out intercessions and thanksgivings and those kinds of things. So did you guys, would you have a Sunday service? Would you just sort of keep the same pattern of Liturgy of the Hours for... Yeah, early on, we uh, we did the, the daily prayer. Right. And then we... Did a Sunday evening focused on communion and Eucharist because we felt like the the call to community life, the call to prayerful life, really is gratitude and thanksgiving, which is what Eucharist means in yeah, Greece, which is the body of Greek. Christ. And so we felt like that was should be our center, and then from that sacred meal flows all meals, and so we had a free flowing Thursday night meal where we would invite anybody mm -hmm. to come with no agenda. There was no Bible study, no agenda to, were you handing to pray. Out, were you handing out trick, chick tracks? Right. No no <laughs> tracks, no Jesus sandwiches trying to make people. So it was just simply allowing a space for people to be their authentic selves and enjoy the other person. And Community, so, meal, right. connection sort of situation. And, and it was immediately popular. People mm -hmm. came out. They would drive out to the middle of the desert to have a meal on a Thursday night. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just from my experience coming out here, I think it was back starting in 2013, 
when I would come out to those meals. Um, it was really amazing because at that time, it would ebb and, ebb and flow from like 15 people to maybe anywhere to like 40 people. Like you didn't right. know what you were going to get week to week. Yeah. And, and it was a really, it was a really beautiful thing to to walk into. Yeah. In fact, it got to, its success got, its success became its weakness. And so. How so? Uh, about five or six years ago, we started getting consistently 75 to 100 people showing oh, up. Wow. Every so Thursday. Every Thursday. Oh, wow. And so that's like a feast. Yeah, it was just a giant <laughs> feast with Vikings running around and uh, people shooting uh, each other. L- and- LARPers were showing up and uh, uh, Mormons, I think, were, were coming. Uh, and so it just became a, a dinner on the grounds church event. Okay. It was too churchy for us. And so it, it, we felt like it violated the original intent for intimacy. And especially for our kids, we wanted our kids who were getting older at the time to be able to sit down at a table with adults and actually have conversations with them. And mm. So we had to break the the big feast down into several small meals that rotate from different houses. So was that sort of the, the families that participate in Desert Rain would meet two or three families here, two or three families right. there? And, and, we, and we've done that until pre-COVID. And, yeah. So this... Um, having the Eucharist, it sounds like be the foundation of your prayers when you would come Sunday. How did, how has that evolved over the, the 15 to 17 years you all have been out here? Uh, It's been the constant. I still feel everything stems from the Eucharist, from the communion together. Um, I, I think that's, I think sharing spirituality together. And and I'm you know and I'm obviously very liberal about this. Uh, the priest Henry Nowen uh, was a Roman Catholic priest, and he would offer he would you know priests say mass every day whether they're mm-hmm. alone or whether they have a congregation it doesn't matter. But he would his reasoning was that the the Eucharist is the body of Christ and it's offered freely to the entire human race if not the cosmos, mm. and so everyone is invited to this table. Uh, believers, non-believers, uh, divorced, uh, uh, transgender people, exactly, and so, so that's kind of my liberal mindset on that. Um, Which is pro- you probably get a lot of pushback from more conservative. Oh yeah, outlooks yeah. on that. Yeah. So along with Henry Nowen, you mentioned uh, Celtic Christianity at the at the top of this. Uh, who who else have who else or what other forms or. Um, has shaped uh, Desert Rain, helped shape Desert Rain as sort of guiding stars. Are you, are you talking about prayer forms? Is that what you're asking about? Or? Well, we can, I mean, we can talk about prayer forms. More specifically, I was talking, I was thinking like people or groups that have helped shape um, yeah, Desert Rain. I, I, would, I would think early on when we first came out here, I was definitely experiencing a personal, for lack of a better word, a Celtic revival in my soul. Mm-hmm a reconnection with that kind of Christianity. Um, and, you know, and we had experimented for over the years with different fixed hour prayer books, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the Catholic Liturgy of the Hours, the Orthodox Prayer Book, some more modern contemporary ones. But one fell into my hands, a very small, actually two little books written by uh, J. Philip Newell. And they were written in the Celtic style, poetic Okay. Uh, earth-based, creation-based, uh, incarnation, uh, which is which is uh, God's spirit poured out on all creation, that kind of a mindset. And so, it, so it became so by praying those prayers, and I and I fixed on those books for ten years. Mm. Uh, that became they became ingrained in me, and uh, and changed my worldview really, changed my theology, the way that I live. So are there any other uh, any other people like that that have changed your outlook on prayer, your outlook on community? Yeah, I would say around 2007, this amazing individual uh, uh, came to see us, a Native American Apache from New Mexico. And he was doing a project. He was He's a clay chemist. That's what he does for a living. Uh-huh. And he's a humanitarian and an activist. Um, 
is he a, chem- a chemist at a he's, business, he, a university? At a university. Okay. He's, he's a professor and, he, okay. and he's developing different patents for clean drinking water through mm. uh, clay objects. Okay. And so he was doing a, we, I don't even know how we found each other, but he did a, a building project with a group of kids from Stanford University uh, on their spring break. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, we would just talk afterwards and have beers and hang out on the porch. And, and he, so one of the days he showed up with a CD and he said, I think, uh, I think you'll really like this. And it was, uh, father Richard Rohr, Franciscan priest mm. in Albuquerque. Yes. And it was a talk he gave called the authority of those who suffered. And that, that completely changed it was. Uh, it felt like this is everything I've been looking for. Uh, he put language to things I couldn't speak, and, uh, and I became very much connected to uh, the Center for Action and Contemplation, uh, the Living School. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, an alumni of that. What exactly is uh, the Living School? It's it's a two year program that they offer okay. for Roar's teaching, and along with Cynthia Bourgeau, uh, another amazing teacher, and then James Finley, a great author and teacher. Yeah, well, all three of those are yeah. are heavy hitters when it comes to some of these things, some of these topics we're talking about. And what what is that living school? What is it? What are those tree uh, training, not training, uh, schooling grounded in? What are some of the things you explored uh, through that school? A lot of it is 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 embracing that again the, that Celtic slash Franciscan. Uh, theology and worldview, which is God is not isolated up in the heavens mm. alone and by himself, uh, but rather God is Trinity, which means God is community mm-hmm. and is a dancing, singing circle forever in very much involved and in participating in this earth, in the incarnation especially. And so, and so things like when Jesus's toe touches the waters of the Jordan at his baptism, all water is now holy. Mm. Everything is holy now. And so it's that kind of a... And so go and find that out. Go and experience that. And that's kind of what Francis of Assisi uh, did and embodied. Uh, On a more practical uh, level, he did go... uh, He did... Francis of Assisi did get training at a monastery in Bobbio, Italy, uh, which was Celtic mm. in its nature, Irish in its nature. So, so that was kind of the lost theology, if you will, the right. the secret uh, before it got uh, branded as heresy and panentheism and that kind of thing. That's really uh, going back to what you were saying about you know just the example of of Christ touching the Jordan and all water. I mean, that goes back to what you were saying earlier too about the Eucharist. All are welcome at the table with the Eucharist, and and all all are all are on this path uh, in the Trinity. Yeah, and it's it's the meal that's taking place eternally in heaven. Uh, the saints who've gone before us, the ancestors, they're with us in that meal, and it's a very profound thing. It's a it's a solidarity with all who are suffering on the on the planet and all who ever have suffered. Uh, it's a solidarity with the joy of of every human family, all in one, all in one cup and one uh, bread, given, distributed freely. One eternal lifetime. Exactly. Oh. It's eternity breaking into the present moment. And um, and I I want to venture down the more of that uh, eternity breaking into the present moment. Sort of coupled with the what's going on at the present moment with Desert Rain in the recent years, but before we get there, uh, one thing I know you and I have talked about quite a bit is is centering prayer, um, laid out uh, by Thomas Keating. Can you can you elaborate a little bit yeah. um, on Thomas a little bit, uh, but more so the centering prayer and how that's played a role here at Desert Rain? Yeah, uh, definitely huge transformation for our community it was a it was a what you'd call a a seminal summer that we had uh i went up to a conference i had been reading thomas keating's books 
uh, but I'd never really seen his model of centering prayer uh, in the wild, so to speak. Okay. And Just on the pages of his books? Right. Mostly. And I'd been reading him for a couple of years okay. and practicing it by myself. Uh, but but the, the idea of, of our community sitting in silence together, that really wasn't on our our radar at all. And so... So I, I, th- I believe it was the summer of 2007. I went to a conference uh, with Richard Rohr and Thomas Keating on the 12 steps, actually. Um, I know a little bit about those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we learned the model, and we so we brought it home, and we experimented with it. And that summer, uh, for 20 minutes, three times a day, we sat under a pine tree in front of the chapel in total silence together. And the entire community. Right. Right. And it transformed us. A lot of the resentments that had built up between the core members uh, that, that come, um, things that, uh, conflicts that we were no longer even talking about anymore because there was no resolution to be had in a rational conversation. They were just. It would just be going in circles at that point. Yeah. It was just, uh, it would just exacerbate the problem. And, and so it was amazing just by sitting in silence together. Then when you're not praying uh, a freestyle prayer, then our, the, your passive aggressiveness can't come out. You know, <laughs> Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this one over here, gluttonous, uh, you know, I don't breathing leave, loudly through his nostrils. Uh, <laughs> I don't forget to take out my trash on trash day <laughs> right, like this exactly, one over here. I, exactly. You know, how uh, crappy we could be to each other. Of course. And so that it it really broke away a lot of those things, and there wasn't, there weren't even like conflict resolution conversations that occurred. It just, uh, at least in my own personal experience, I'd wake up in the middle of that summer, and the resentments that I had were stolen from mm. me. They were just gone, um, and so it broke us into intentional what I what we'd call. Well, M. Scott Peck would call intentional or true, true community. authentic community. I, I think that's when we first began to really sense that. And and uh, it was it was really good. And you would it sounds like your assumption is that that came through because of centering prayer. Absolutely. Yeah. The prayer sort definitely of a tipping did that. point. Most definitely. And then the Quaker influence came in as well. And you know, and they sit in silence. It's a silent tradition. And so that was very helpful in our next chapter, if you will. Well, I know for me personally, there there's something very profound about silence in the sense that it's it's not intuitive in the year 2000. You know, it's we're constantly kind of like what you're talking about with the church, hustling, yep. bigger, better, uh, louder. That's in all aspects of our life, more distractions, more... Uh, pay attention to this. Everyone's vying for uh, your attention. And I know for me, some of the biggest transformations have come from sitting in silence on a regular basis. Yeah, um, for sure. With people, with other people. Yeah, most definitely. It's it's the, And it goes back to the monastic tradition of the desert fathers and mothers who had the saying, uh, go to your cell, which in their context, that was literally a cave in the desert. Go into by, your, by themselves. Yeah, go to your go to your room, uh, or Jesus called it the inner room, mm. and uh, and go sit in silence, and it will teach you everything you need to know. And so that's a terrifying it invitation is. for it most is. people. Even when you think you're ready for that invitation, exactly. you're, you're not ready for that no, invitation. No. What, it's the same as uh, no one's ready for a child. To bring a child into the world, they, no matter how many classes or books you can read, uh, when that child comes, the child arrives, and uh, yeah, it's it's time to time to step into that whatever that role is as as father or mother for that that child. So as that melted away, resentments as you were able to step into authentic community, how has that manifested in the last several years here at, uh, at Desert Rain? Well, for sure, I, I think the core families that have gone through this process over and over again are able to make it easier for those that 
have come mm. uh, since then. And we're able to, you know, when there's, when there are, most of the time there, when there are conflicts, it's going to be uh, with children or pets. <laughs> <It's gonna> be, <laughs> that's where the, the crux of these things are going to usually be. And, uh, and so we're able to say, yeah, this is this stage. You're going to get through this stage. This is how you can do it. And, uh, and so we can lend a hand in that way. Um, but even before that, uh, it seemed like when we do collaborative projects together, it just, it was, we were like the A team. It was just when we're hosting a retreat or hosting a group of people, it was just, it still is. It, but even then it just amazed me with all the, even when we were in that conflict stage or the, mm. the emptiness stage, when it was time to, to uh, serve people and offer hospitality or go out into the greater community and do a, a service mm-hmm. project, uh, like at a food bank or something like We were like a well-oiled machine. It was just incredible. That is, it's really... And it still is that way. It's just COVID has shut us down a little bit, you know. Yeah, and, and prior to COVID, what were some of the things uh, that you personally and, and as well as the community had been engaging with? Well, I would say going back to uh, directly f- uh, funneling, if you will, or flowing out of the centering prayer process, we kind of stumbled onto an idea of uh, rather than coming up with our own ministry initiatives, go find what people are already doing in the greater area. And 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 personally, just my own personal preference, I was always hoping that they were uh, more secular people mm. or people uh, that you know, uh, are, are not Christians. And so, uh, and so we would just go find uh, a community food bank and we would literally go up to them and say, how can we serve? And so mm-hmm. we would just do things like that. Um, I began to go to the prison and do uh, a regular. And so I, I had an openness at the time of uh, my time had been freed up. So I spent most of my time in prayer and, and studying and, and then I just became open to whatever opportunity comes, I'll take. And so it became, at that point, prison ministry going there. Uh, I think it was twice a week for about six or seven years. Um, and uh, those kinds of things. So, Well, and I think, I, well, we talked about it on the last episode as far as the, those nudges from God, so to speak. Right. Um, but yeah, the, I know for me having stepped into the prison context for 12-step groups. Um, it's unbelievable. It, it's yeah, a whole it different um, reality in a beautiful way, in a yeah. beautiful and, and connected way. I personally benefited way more from it than the yeah. inmates did from anything I gave or told them. <laughs> 100% my experience as well. So long um, – so food banks um, – People who needed their homes fixed, uh, heaters in the winter for a neighbor, you know, just uh, small little initiatives. That just, just looking for ways come to come up, yeah. And we would just, and we're, and we're still in that mode. That's still our, that kind of uh, became our MO, you know. And so instead of becoming top heavy with our own programs and in, in, in the way that a church organization would, we're, we're more fluid, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we're able to, uh, to help organizations that are already there and we look for the ones that are odd uh the ones that are on the fringes uh and and the ones that are uh, really not in mainstream christianity often so i've I've also noticed as uh being part of the community and a friend of the community for several years that somehow people that have had some kind of falling out with a uh very um, oh, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? The church life, mm-hmm. uh, the the dogmatic life. Right. Um, the they they find their way out here a lot of the time, and, yeah. and and almost in a when when they're in a state of grief for losing that community in their life. Yeah, definitely, and that it's kind of connected to our original. We don't know what we're doing, but God does. So in, the, in those conversations, we would, we would say, well, we don't have our church congregation anymore, and we live in the middle of the desert. What are we supposed to do? And, right now. and so it was kind of like, you know, comical, because I, I would say something like, 
uh, I know we could, uh, we could offer retreats for people who are burned out. And then the group would, we'd all realize, uh, nobody comes to the desert for retreats. They want to go to where there's water and where right. there's forest and ch- shade. They can get and served. The a, environment's a nice, not trying to kill them. A nice alcoholic <laughs> beverage. And so I was like, oh, okay. And I said, I know, uh, I could, I could, uh, learn how to be a spiritual director and help uh, pastors and ministers and leaders in churches who are burnt out can help them rethink those things. And then uh, the response was kind of like, your reputation is shot in the Christian community. Everybody hates you. No one's going to call you or come to you. (laughs) But people call you and come to you. That's the crazy thing. (laughs) That's exactly what ended up happening. We became a retreat center that offers hospitality and and it is often to people that are in that deconstructive phase, their their church life has failed them. And rather than going back to the fake it till you make it stage, um, they're they're uh, they're just kind of done or they're just rethinking it. It's in shambles, and uh, and we're we're able to have a grace and a and a charismatic gift for the, for that, if you will. Well, and I think the the beautiful part about it too, from my perspective, is. Uh, the less it's not a formal retreat. It's not a formal uh, coming out necessarily. At least in the, yeah. in the you know five five to whatever years that I've yeah, in the I've been years. around. It's 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 people sort of stumble their way out here. Yeah, and it becomes a retreat. It becomes a community to support them. Uh, you get to give uh, spiritual direction, so to speak. Right. It's not. It's. It seems to be more that than people being like, "Oh, well, David Morrison, he's he's a yeah. spiritual director." It's yeah, it, no. It happens informally, and then it becomes a formal thing. There's a weird yeah, and it was dance. Believe it or not, we were more formal in our early days. So we had most weekends were booked with small groups, uh-huh. churches that had an agenda, uh, an agenda run retreat, and. But we just we just got tired, you know. When right. There's only so, so much you can do. So now we kind of tell people you're on your own, you know. Uh, we'll we'll dip in for a session. We'll teach you some drum. We'll make you making, a, we'll make you a meal, maybe. Yeah. Do communion. Yeah. We'll make your meal. Um, we'll come in for some jokes and maybe a scotch if you, if I like you, and uh, and we'll dip out. <laughs> so uh, we're coming to our end of uh, of our time together this uh, week. Um, but one thing I really want to talk about the last few minutes here is, is um, this sort of uh, curriculum slash chaplaincy school slash uh, helping people learn how to serve the community in an unconventional way. And how did you get that idea? And, and what, does that, what does that look like the last couple of years uh, pre-COVID? Yeah. Obviously, we, things have have changed drastically over the last six months. But prior to that, what 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 was that for you? Uh, I I think we just saw a need. You know, there are people that want to uh, do more formal and regular ministry of some sort, some sort of service like you do with, with in the recovery movement. Others maybe with uh, in food banks and prisons, uh, families that are struggling and that kind of thing. And just as many of the, it just seems many of the institutions in our country are, are failing us mm-hmm. or, or they're in crisis. And, uh, and we, we just felt that way. And, and, and so the red tape in front of a seminary training and the, and the cost of it the is cost. just astronomical. Uh, and so we just thought, well, we'll offer a, a hands-on kind of ministry school uh, in that sense where each individual will take a couple of years and discern what they feel they may be called to. Um, in this stage in my life, I feel like uh, not so much a spiritual director, but uh, but, but the, in, the, in the Irish tradition of uh, what they would call an anamkara, which means soul friend, somebody that just mm-hmm. is available to be a friend to your soul, a safe place for you to... Uh, to uh, reveal your soul, and so, and see it transformed together, and so that that would be mine, and 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 and, and externally, what that means pre-COVID was uh, was uh, for me, it was hospice visitation, 
and um, and visiting asylum seekers in the in the local ICE unit. And so that's so others would would discern those kinds of things, and we would talk about the philosophy of ministry and uh, and you know and, and gospel training kind of thing. Discipleship is the traditional word. So. Yeah, discipleship, but uh, but in a um, sort of going back to this theme of water, almost with with Christ touching the Jordan. You know, it, it's a it's a free flow as far as each individual getting to find out where they're called, where those nudges yeah. from God are sending them. Because uh, not everyone fit is fit to go into a prison. Right, right. That that could drain some people in a week or two. Exactly. And other people, it feeds them. Um, some people uh, coming alongside uh, people that are experiencing homelessness or um, or maybe they just got out of jail and they're looking right. for mentors and things of that nature. Um, it's it, the freedom to find where you're called is the beautiful part for, of my experience being involved with this mm. um, this program. Yeah, until COVID kind of interrupted it, and then I had to go and have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, don't go dying on us. <laughs> I'm I'm a down to earth guy, but I don't want to be that down that down to earth. Am I right? <laughs> Uh, well, David Morrison, thank you once again. Thank you, Dorian. Uh, for Mason. some <laughs> Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, and uh, next week, I would like to uh, explore this uh, chaplaincy curriculum idea of, of coming alongside existing um, services out there to, to show up for people and, and bring that, cl- that Christ light with us. So Sounds great. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.